0: Would you rather be a king who has all power, loved by everyone, or be a beggar who can't exercise his power and is despised by everyone? Would you rather get what you want when you want, or give up what you want? and get what nobody wants. Would you rather take orders from yourself or take orders from someone else? Think about what's more appealing. Not to die, to be made like God, to have an all-you-can-eat buffet at any moment, to fly, to inherit the gross domestic product of every nation on the earth, all those things, or to die, to be abandoned by God, to go hungry, to be impaled, to be homeless. What path sounds more appealing? It's an obvious answer, really, and you may have caught on by now, but these were the paths laid before Jesus one from Satan and the other from his father. And he chose the path laid out before him by his father. And we can't help but think we wouldn't design it this way. I mean, it's a struggle if I leave the remote on the other side of the room and have to get up in order to retrieve it. (laughs) Let alone all these things laid out for Jesus here. And that's partially the point that we wouldn't design this path laid out before Jesus. The path that is unappealing, nonsensical to us, is actually the wise plan that God uses to accomplish what we never could if it was up to us to design it. We left off the disciples with them answering this key central question that Jesus asked them. Who do you say that I am? They say the Christ. Now, this week, Jesus has something like a princess bride moment with them. He's, they, he doesn't want them to keep using that word, but th- he doesn't think they think what it thinks they means. So now, the disciples encounter something unexpected. They use this word Christ, but they, it doesn't think what they think it means. They encounter the path laid before Jesus, a path they would not have designed. But wait, as the late Billy Mays would say, there's more. If they follow Jesus within the next 15 minutes, he'll throw in something else for absolutely no charge, just pay, shipping, and handling. I'm just kidding. Well, beyond the fact that this unexpected path Jesus lays out for himself, he lays out the same path for them. Reading the passage before us today, it made me think of other words of Jesus from Matthew 7, where he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Today, we'll read of Jesus' counterintuitive, seemingly foolish plan, and how that plan affects us, and how it's actually better than anything we would design ourselves. So if you're not there yet, turn with me in the Bible to Mark chapter 8, verse 31. I think it's something like 844. I'm going to find it in one second. That is right. 844, if you're looking at a Bible that looks like this in the pew in front of you. Mark 8, beginning at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It's God's word. The main point for our time together, this passage, this sermon, is that following Jesus looks backwards. Following Jesus looks backwards. But it's what's best, and it's worth it. Following Jesus looks backwards, but it's what's best, and it's what's worth it. Now, to illustrate to you that our path is not unique, that we are not alone on this, I was thinking of when I was a boy, which is not all that long ago. Um, And when I was a boy, I I was not the adventurous one of my friend group, but... I enjoyed watching adventurous things. I enjoy it's just I enjoyed watching other people do them, so I was really the one who egged on the adventurous ones uh, to you know eat something out of the garbage in the cafeteria, uh, to eat dog food, uh, to eat a blended concoction of all the condiments in the refrigerator. Um, yeah, pretty much mainly to eat different things. Uh, and adventurous might not be the best word. Um, Thankfully, though, Jesus isn't like me, and thankfully in more ways than one. Here, what we just read, Jesus lays out a path for us. But he's not the one egging us on, saying, you go first and you tell me what it's like. No, no, no. Jesus has left a path for us, but he went ahead of us. He went ahead. All the way to death. In fact, he went through death. And he's come back from the other side. And said, everything's okay. Come, keep following me. So as we uh, dive into this passage this morning, we're going to split it up into two different parts. Uh, the two paragraphs, mainly. Uh, with each of these paragraphs, we'll notice two different paths. So the first, in verses 31 to 33, we'll notice Jesus' path. And in second, verses 34 through the first verse of chapter 9, we'll notice our path. And we'll explain both of these, what's going on here. We'll see the responses to these paths, and we'll see how they're actually quite similar. So first, Jesus' path. If you look at verse 31, it's perhaps the strongest brass tacks moment of the Gospel of Mark so far. It's that Mulan moment, that let's get down to business moment. Now last week, we saw the moment when Jesus' identity is laid out more clearly than it ever has been laid out before in Mark. Peter says Jesus is the Christ, God's anointed, the Messiah, the one promised who would restore God's kingdom. That kind of recognition of who Jesus is, at least from a human, hasn't happened yet so far in the Gospel of Mark. Well, just as last week as Jesus' identity was laid out in such clear terms, this week his work is laid out in clearer terms than it ever has been yet. Now we've gotten some inkling that this is what's coming if you read verse 31. We've seen undercurrent of opposition to Jesus. We've even seen a plot from a group like the Pharisees who are plotting to kill Jesus. But Jesus himself hasn't gotten to a brass tacks moment like this here. And we even get a clue in this verse that he hasn't said anything like this yet. That clue comes in that little word, began. It says he began to teach them this. Now that the disciples recognize that he is the Christ, he's going to show them how much they still don't know about what that means. He'll have to teach them that this is his path because this is not the path that they are expecting for him. So, verses 31 to 33 show us Jesus' path. So, first, we're just going to explain what is that path. And second, we'll explain or try to answer why that path doesn't make any sense. What is it? Why does it make any sense? So, as Jesus begins to teach this path, what is it? We should hone in verse 31. That's the main verse that shows us what Jesus' path is. Overall, you could see that the path won't lead him to a good place. And just some housekeeping things about this verse. Uh, Jesus uses the title for himself called Son of Man. It titles along the same lines of that of Christ or Messiah. It alludes to the figure we read of earlier in Daniel 7. The Son of Man who is empowered with God's authority. And Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, often in relation to his suffering. Uh, and it's interesting that he speaks in the third person. Uh, it's not that it's just he's this far-out, deep-thinker kind of guy, though he is. But it's as if this role of the Son of Man is already determined, and he's just following in it. Another housekeeping thing uh, about this verse, just help us know what's going on. Uh, you notice the groups Jesus lists in verse 31. Uh, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. Those groups composed the Jewish, what's called the sanhedrin. The elders were 70 lay members, would be a council, and then the, uh, the chief priests, or among the priests would include the high priest, uh, which included figures like Ananias and Caiaphas. We'll see them later at Jesus' trial. And then we see uh, the scribes, and these would be legal advisors. So why that all matters is that the Sanhedrin, that group, that was the official religious authority from Jerusalem in that day. So as one commentator aptly points out, Jesus will suffer, be rejected, and die. Not at the hands of a mob. Not at the hands of humanity at its worst. Jesus will go through all that he will go through at the hands of humanity when it's supposed to be at its best. If any group should have gotten this right, it was the Sanhedrin, and they got it wrong, and they crucified the Son of God. So in looking at what Jesus' path is, all of verse 31, those are just some housekeeping things, I want you to focus on one word, one word from verse 31. Must. Must. Jesus must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, must rise again. See, that little word keeps us from saying that this was an adjustment on Jesus's part. It keeps us from saying that he was something like the Wrigley Company. You know the Wrigley Company? They make all the different kinds of gum. You know, originally Wrigley Company didn't make gum, they made baking soda, and they just included chewing gum with the baking soda, and it turned out that chewing gum did really well, so they went on that end. Jesus isn't like that. He didn't come intending to be this conquering warrior king, and when that didn't work out, he figured that maybe the martyr stick would work. So let's do that. No. Jesus must suffer, rejected, be killed, rise again. This was the plan all along. He's not just predicting it, he's intending it. And another place in John 10, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And knowing this was the path and plan for him, Jesus came anyway. And the question becomes, why? Why was this the plan? Why is that must there? Why must Jesus be rejected and killed, suffer, die, and rise again? Why must this happen? Can you answer that well? That's crucial in order to understand and believe in Jesus and the good news he brings. Understanding why it's necessary that he did his work that he describes here. So we can probably think of more reasons than this, but I think there are at least four reasons why this must is here, why he must do this word, and there are four can'ts, four can'ts. Okay, first, Jesus must suffer and die because Scripture can't be broken. Scripture can't be broken. That's another quote from what Jesus says elsewhere, that Scripture can't be broken. When we get to Jesus' arrest and trial uh, in the Gospel of Mark, and we will not get to it this year, I'm sorry. Uh, It may take a couple of years to get there. Uh, But when we do, we will see Jesus repeat the refrain in order that Scripture must be fulfilled. That Scripture must be fulfilled. So prophets such as Isaiah and Zechariah, most famously in the chapter that we read earlier, Isaiah 53, they prophesied that the Messiah would be one, must be one, who suffers, who bears the iniquity or sin of many, who brings healing by his wounds, that he must do that. So the scripture can't be broken. Secondly, similar to the first reason, Jesus must suffer and die because God can't compromise his promise of mercy. God can't compromise His promise of mercy. So from the beginning, from the beginning of the whole story, I mean all the way back. We're going all the way back to Genesis. We see that God is the one who has the heart to restore the people who have sinned against him. And to do that, he provides substitutes for them. We even see that in Adam and Eve. He provides animal coverings and he slays the animals instead of them see that in Abraham and his son Isaac. And God provides the ram instead of Isaac. And that uh, provision of a substitute keeps on going. And it points to a final and perfect substitute. And that's Jesus. And so, God can't compromise his promise of mercy. God is love. It's part of his nature to forgive. So he makes promises like that of that he will bless all the nations of the earth and that he will bring a new covenant, remembering sins no more. And Jesus fulfills those promises. He is God's full and final provision of mercy. Number three, Jesus must suffer and die because God can't compromise his justice. God can't compromise his justice. That Jesus must die tells us God must have a payment and must have justice for sin. Because friends, not only is God great in mercy, but he is also great in justice and holiness. Not only does God forgive sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. Not only is he merciful, but he cannot ignore sin. But Jesus' death means that God can maintain both, that he can be both merciful and holy and just, that he can extend forgiveness and mercy to those who believe in Christ, because Christ has satisfied the justice for their sin. Romans uh, Romans 3, 26 captures this so well. It says, God is just and justifier of the one who has faith. Christ Jesus so Jesus must suffer and die because scripture can't be broken because God can't compromise his promise of mercy because God can't compromise his justice but fourthly Jesus must suffer and die because we can't save ourselves because we can't save ourselves friends if he has to do this if he must do this there can't be another way. Or else Jesus would say, you know, I came, I'm going to die on the cross, but it just, it's just to help you guys out. Like, maybe you guys can do this on your own. But if you need help, I'll be here. I'll, I'll do this. That would be foolish. If we could help ourselves at all, then he would not have had to come and die and rise again. If we could somehow finagle our way to make our good outweigh the bad and be fine, then Jesus would not have had to die. That Jesus must die tells us that we can't do this on our own. Someone must do this for us. Friends, do you understand that Jesus must do this for you? Jesus must do this for you. You can't do this for yourself. If you could, he would not have had to come and die and rise again. That's an offensive message because it tells us that we are unable. But it's also an uplifting one because it tells us that Christ is able. You know, there's a reason that uh, thousands of new self help books are released every year it's because they don't work. We can't help ourselves. There's a reason why the gospel is good news. We can't help ourselves, but God stepped in for us. This is the path, and this is necessary. This had to happen. Listen uh, to how the writer of the book of Hebrews explains it in Hebrews 2. He says, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to do this. This had to happen. And the good news, friends, is that it did happen. Jesus had to die to fulfill Scripture, maintain God's justice and mercy, and save us. And friends, he has done it. And God confirmed it by raising him from the dead. Jesus' path is good news. Or so we think. Now we spent some time looking at what this path is, but now we consider why this path doesn't make any sense. Now there was no misunderstanding for what was ahead for Jesus. It says he spoke about it plainly. But what rings in our ears as a good tune rung in Peter's ears as something bad, something like freeform form jazz. Remember, we've got a lot of freeform jazz fans here. Look with me at verse 32. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, the thing that struck me about this is the stark contrast between Peter taking Jesus aside and how Jesus has took other people aside in the previous weeks you see the differences there? And then what struck me is that Jesus allowed Peter to do this. I mean, my goodness, what patience. So far in Mark, that word rebuking has been something only done to demons. And this is how Peter treats Jesus. Why? Why does Peter treat Jesus in this way? Well, for starters, this path... Doesn't make any sense to Peter. A crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron. It's like jumbo shrimp. Paul writes that this was foolishness to Jews. A crucified Messiah. book of Deuteronomy says that all who hang on a tree are cursed by God. How could God's blessed one be cursed? This wasn't what Peter grew up hearing about who the Messiah would be. He didn't grow up hearing that the Messiah would be like the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. Now, the Jewish people didn't associate the Messiah with that uh, passage. But like we've seen time and again, and we see most clearly here, Jesus redefines their definition of who the Messiah is. And he says he must do this. Well, why does Peter treat Jesus in this way? You see that Jesus actually gives an answer to that. Jesus actually explains Peter's behavior. It's more than that this didn't make sense to Peter, that this was a paradigm shift for him, or that's a part of it. You see Jesus' explanation for Peter's behavior, verse 33? It says, For, he was giving the basis or reason, For, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So think about this. Peter doesn't want Jesus to die. He would rather see Jesus get the kingdom started right then and there. Skip the suffering part, go right to the power part. And since Peter was in Jesus' crew, this would bode well for Peter. Now, who else tried to do what Peter was doing here? You know, just skip the suffering part, let's just go right to the crown. Skip the cross, go to the crown. Satan. Satan tries to do the exact same thing. So along the line of Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. You can read about it in Matthew 4. This, uh, this means Peter is acting like Satan. And Satan, that word, it literally means adversary. Opposing God's plan. It's exactly what Peter's doing. And so Jesus calls him out on it. And says, in effect, get out of my sight. Now, Peter's response to Jesus' path that he must do, Peter's response should promote in us humility. It should promote in us humility. So, you know, it was just last week. It was just a few sentences before what we saw Peter doing, where Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, uh, son of Jonah, for, uh, for you did not re- man did not reveal this to you, for your, uh, my Father in heaven did. And now, this week, Jesus tells Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Reminds us of James 3, verse 10 from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. Brothers, this ought not to be so. Here was a moment for Peter when he was convinced that he knew better than God, that he's got a tighter grasp on what's right and wrong than God himself is it possible that you will ever think that same way? Is it possible that there will be a time in your life that you tell God, if you were him, you would work in the exact opposite way that he's working right now? In light of Peter's response here, how should we handle those moments? Is it just, shut up and trust me? I think we can do better than that. I think we can start at the gospel again and see what that shows us. It shows us that God used the exact opposite of what we would design to bring about the greatest good that we could never get on our own. If there's proof that God knows what he's doing, even when we can't see it, it's in the path that's laid out before Jesus. A path that looks foolish, but is actually glorious. And remembering that design should promote humility and trust in us. And One last note on this. Remember that we said at the beginning, Jesus doesn't ask us to do what he never did here. And we say that we need to be humble enough to trust God's good design, even when we can't see it. Has Jesus been down that road? Oh, yeah. Jesus has traveled down that road farther than any of us ever will. Up to and during his death, God's design, God's purpose and path for Jesus weighed on him. But what did he do? He trusted his father. He trusted that his father knew what he was doing. And now Jesus stands, risen from the dead, to help us do the same. All right, that's Jesus' path. Now we're going to look at our path. And sports analogy alert. Okay, it's been a couple weeks. I feel like I'm due. It's March Madness. This is my favorite sports time of the year. This is, in fact, my favorite weekend of sports of the year. Uh, So maybe you're the person who fills out the bracket based on team's mascots or colors. That's okay. Maybe you have no idea which March Madness is. Uh, it's a college basketball tournament. Uh, that's pretty much all you need to know. And now, March Madness sportscasters spend countless hours analyzing the strengths and weaknesses of each team. Now, it's often the case that the teams with the most upperclassmen, the teams with the most juniors and seniors, are the teams that are the best, that do the, the well, most well. Now, don't get me wrong. Talent makes a difference, yes. But you can't underestimate... Being molded together in the same system by the same coach over four years. And a good coach can do that over and over and over again with different players. Take a couple seasons and mold them into how he wants them to play. Jesus makes another thing clear in verse 34. If we are his followers, our path will look similar to his. In other words... He describes the kinds of players who are on his team. We'll look at our path laid out in these verses in the same way we looked at Jesus' path. Just going to see what it is, and instead of why it doesn't make sense, we're going to see why it does make sense. Okay, what is our path? It's easy to spot those big verbs in verse 34. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Where do you get to those? There's something that comes before that. It's reminded reminder, like when you're playing piano, you've got to be able to play chopsticks before you play Beethoven. Now, before any of those big main verbs, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me. Now, there's a reason why Jesus starts with what he does in verses 31 to 33 before what he gets to in verse 34. There's a reason why he starts with his path before he describes our path. The reason is that the kind of the Messiah Jesus is shapes the kind of disciples we are. If you don't know who Jesus really is, you won't know how to be his disciple. And what's more, friends, until we're convinced that he must die for us if we're to be saved, then we will not do what he describes. In verse 34. We will not come after him. So if you're at that point, and when you're at that point, friend, we pray that you are, then this is what faith in Jesus looks like. This is our path. Okay, are you ready? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. Just take each of those in turn, real quick. Deny yourself. This is so different from what we hear from the world. We're told that our desires should come before anything else. Uh, Recently at the Golden Globe Awards, uh, Glenn Close won the Golden Globe for Best Actress in her role in the film uh, The Wife. Uh, The film's about a woman who sacrifices for her husband's career and at the end is unhappy. So in her acceptance speech, She said that when her mother was 80, she told her that she had sacrificed for her family, but had no accomplishments for her own. And reflecting on that, Glenn Close told the women in the room we cannot do that for anyone. We have to get our own fulfillment. Now, it's possible for women to be oppressed, and it's too often the case and we're not saying that we should loathe ourselves that would still be being obsessed about ourselves but what Jesus says is opposite of what Glenn Close says what Jesus says is that we don't come first not even our family comes first not our country comes first he comes first denying ourselves means we focus on Christ not us It means there's a new banner over our hearts that reads, under new management. Take up your cross. This isn't a piece of jewelry that you can find at Jared. This was the most dehumanizing form of execution in the Roman Empire. This is how far submission and allegiance to Jesus goes. Now, it won't go that far for everyone, Verse 38 assumes that there will be people around when Christ returns who aren't ashamed of him. But for the readers of the Gospel of Mark, who were Christians in the city of Rome, this was not a far fetched reality being crucified for following Christ. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Now, it doesn't come out in the English. But the tense of the verb tells us that this is something continual and ongoing. So for those of you here who saw those words, uh, if anyone would come after me and said, yep, check mark, I did that, I'm good, I can check out for the next five minutes. No. This is for all of us. Follow me. This is a new way of life. So what's the big picture then? What does faith in Jesus look like? What is our path? Well, it certainly doesn't look like a hobby that fits in nicely between the trip to Starbucks and the Home Depot. It certainly looks more radical than much of American Christianity. The faith doesn't look like raising your hand when nobody's looking around. Faith doesn't look like filling out a decision card. It doesn't look like coming to the front at the end of a service. Faith may start those ways, but if there's no impact beyond those moments, then it was not faith. And that's the danger of those moments. There's no communication of what comes next. What is Jesus' invitation? Maybe that should be our pattern. Jesus' invitation. Follow me. It's up front. Up front about what believing in him means. And to the world, friends, this looks like losing our life. By coming after Jesus... We give up our right to do as we please. We say to Jesus, I am yours. And why would we do that? Why does this make sense? Well, Jesus tells us in the closing of this passage. If you look at verses 35 to 38, you'll see four fours. It's like uh, Wendy's four for four. Four of fours, each coming at the beginning of the verse. So if he explain what our path is in verse 34, he gives reasons why we would do that in verses 35 to 38. And I think there are two pairs of reasons that we could sum it up something like this. The first pair is that no matter how hard we try, we can't save ourselves, but Jesus can. We can't save ourselves, but Jesus can. It's pretty much summing up verse 35. And the other pair is this, that in the long run, and even now, living for yourself isn't worth it, but living for Christ is. Living for yourself isn't worth it, but living for Christ is. Just to tackle the first pair. So no matter how hard we try, we can't save ourselves. Death comes knocking on each door no matter how many kale smoothies you drink, no matter how many Flintstone gummies you eat, no matter how many miles on the treadmill you run, death will come to you. You might delay it, but there's no escaping it. Friends, the same thing works for our spiritual life before God. We may try to spruce it up on our own. We may even have some good deeds, but these can't undo the hidden sins of our heart. They're like perfume on a corpse. Try as we might to make the corpse smell good. It's still a corpse. So, whoever would try to save his life will lose it. Our only hope of life is if someone else gives it to us. So we have to let go, relinquish the controls, hand them over to the Lord. God isn't our co-pilot. He's the driver. We don't know all the roads that uh, that's ahead for us, but we have peace knowing where the road leads and who it is who is with us always. So whoever loses his life for my sakes in the Gospels will save it. Just like Jesus, in order to save us, He had to lose His life. So us, in order to be saved, we must lose our claim to be our own Lord and Savior. And what's stunning is that when that happens, we actually gain far more than we could ever imagine. All right, second pair, why we would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Why this path makes sense. Go something like this. Living for yourself isn't worth it, but living for Jesus Is. Living for yourself isn't worth it. But living for Jesus is. Now, can we, can we say something? That sounds crazy. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? That sounds crazy. Let's be upfront about it. Well, y'all, there are good things here. But how much can they really give you? Can success and comfort and convenience and even people really give you peace and meaning when you know they'll go away one day they were never meant to do those things and so verses 36 to 37 the logic behind it and when jesus comes back do we really think he's going to be impressed by all the stuff we have and so verse 39 or 38 and what's the flip side of that the flip side of living for ourselves If living for ourselves is not worth it both now and for the long run, living for Jesus is worth it both now and in the long run. Christians, rehearse this truth. Those who have not yet followed Christ, hear this truth now. Because Christ's work to pay for our sins is done, we can know right now that our souls are saved. We can know that right now. We can know right now that our sins not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Jesus says that doesn't keep us from suffering, that actually does something better. It gives us a meaning and a purpose and a hope that suffering can't touch. And suffering actually deepens and makes us cling tighter to the hope and enjoy it more. Where else will you find that besides Christ? All other systems, our peace and our eternity depend on us. In Christianity, our peace, our eternity doesn't depend on us. It depends on Jesus. He gives us a peace that nothing here can touch. And what he tells his disciples in verse 1 of chapter 9 is that he gives us an inheritance that nothing here can touch, that neither moth nor rust can destroy. But for his disciples, this meant that some of them would get to see his transfiguration, an unveiling of his glory, a preview of what his return would be. And for all of us, he leaves us with a word of comfort and encouragement. Yes, we lose our lives. We give up self-determination. We give up being our own Lord and Savior. We leave behind our old way of living, and in return... We receive an assurance, an inheritance that nothing can touch. Friends, we will see great things beyond what we can think or imagine. Following Christ, a peace, and inheritance that nothing can touch. Many pastors share the example of John Chrysostom, who's the fourth century Christian. He was brought before the Empress Eudotia, And she threatened John with banishment if he kept preaching the gospel. But John told her, You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, said the Empress. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God, said John. I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there but I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. For there is nothing you can do to harm me. We become courageous when we know that nothing can rob us of what Christ has given to us. So in conclusion, friends, we say that we must lose our lives We give up living in a way to establish our goodness. We give up following ourselves. We say, Jesus, save me or I die. And we say that no matter where you place me, at school, at home, at the bank, in retirement, in sales, in family, in our neighborhood, no matter where you place me, with his help, I follow you. And we do so with the assurance that because of his work for us, We have him and he has us now and forever. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us faith to follow you, to trust that your design and plan is better than anything we would come up with on our own. And Lord, if we are to be saved, if we are to be reconciled to you, there must be someone who goes in our place, and we thank you that there is. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for enduring the cross, for the joy set before you. Thank you for the assurance that our souls are saved. Would we live in that and would nothing touch it? Thank you for the assurance that we have an inheritance, a hope of glory that is a sure expectation because of what you have done for us. Give, us, give these things to us, we pray in your name. Amen.